All right, Pastor Mark here. New friend. We're gonna be we're gonna do dinner tonight, so we'll be friends when it's over. Our our wives are getting lunch. So I'm here with my friend, new friend, uh, John Lover from the Warrior Poets Society. I want to ask you a few questions. First, true or false, you assaulted a minor today on your way to our uh, interview. On the plane. Uh, there's a story <laughs> behind it. A meet- no, 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 so we're no, not no, friends no, just, anymore. This is a yes or no question. You assaulted a minor today. I have problems with the question. I refuse to respond, but you just said, like, hey, we're friends. We're not friends. We're not friends anymore. Oh, I'm not drinking your coffee. I'm going to pour this out, and I'm done. We're just done that quick. But you had an interesting trip. I had a very interesting plane flight here. And now I have to share the... you got to tell the story, man. So yeah. my wife and I were sitting in the back of the plane, uh, and my wife looks over, and she sees a dude punch a woman. Not like a little punch, like a big punch. Like a, how big was the guy? How the big guy he- was, I don't know, taller than me. He's definitely over six feet, but he's really thin. It looked like a, you know, a, a teenager. He couldn't quite grow the beard out, but he, you know, he scraggly. So, anyway, uh, I saw that. My wife immediately was like, "John, do something!" And I'm, 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 oh, see, yeah, I'm on YouTube. I'm, I have I'm, to. I'm, I'm now not, obligated. It's not YouTube. This is brand defense. It's, I'm built. <laughs> it's not the brand. Yeah. It's the, that's just how I'm wired. Okay, okay, I'm okay. built to be a protector. I you sure you didn't on. go in the bathroom and lock the door and just pray? I'm, I'm you know. It, you got to at some point stop trolling me. You got to let me tell oh, the okay, story. Okay, go, go, go. Man alive. Shots fired. I'm getting... Anyway, so I, I, I was immediately there. Uh, I, I didn't see the actual punch, but the flight attendants were extremely upset. And they're there. They're very, very bothered. Uh, and so I, I, I kind of arrived there, and I'm just ready to help. Uh, and I'm just observing what's going on. And this uh, this dude... Uh, it's being extremely aggressive. Uh, I found out that she was her, his caretaker. Uh, and then I'm just watching this play out, just not doing anything. And then when he uh, pushed her, yeah. uh, I got involved. And I immediately put a double arm bar right there, and I, I pulled him back. And when he resisted me, I went ahead and just took him down to the ground right there uh, in the plane. Uh, and, you know, he's fighting me to try to, to, to get loose, and I wasn't having that. And I just had some very choice words, and I was trying to scare him straight. You know, so of like just letting them know, yeah, "Yeah, bro, of like you will not hurt if you hurt her, I'm gonna hurt you real bad. You're gonna be in the overhead bin. This, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he calmed down, and and then I helped him up, kind of dusted him off, and he was not being violent anymore. Uh, But it upset the uh, flight crew enough that they deplaned that teenager and uh, presumably teenager and his mom. But yeah, I I I might have assaulted him. That's (laughs) it's not exactly how I thought the story was. So thank you for clarifying that. We appreciate that very, yeah. very much. Yeah. Um, and God bless your wife, man. She's like, get in there. She knows me. She knows how <laughs> I'm built. She's yeah. like, I'm coming at them. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're warrior poets. It's kind of sacred protectors. That's our whole shtick is ready to sacrifice and defend others. So. Yeah. So let's uh, talk leadership a little bit. Key to leadership, being a good follower. So tell me when in your life you kind of made that pivot and you decided there is a God and I'm going to follow him. And before I'm a leader, I got to be a follower. Okay. So this is really pressing in to kind of when I first became a Christian. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So I, I was not saved like most folks that I hear of, of like I was saved right when I went into the military in basic training uh, or right before basic training, rather, I just had uh, this 
uh, kind of time was around May 20th of 2001, 19 years old 19, uh, yeah. at the time. And I just had an encounter with God, kind of like on a Paul on the road to Damascus type so of experience. So what happened? I had no church I was going to. There was no pastor. There was no Bible. There was nothing. It was just me alone. And I'd moved out when I was 15 years old. So I'd already been on my own. I was kind of like a man's man. I was a, a very good wrestler and I'd been to college for a little bit of time. So I was used to being on my own and I was a tough kid. Uh, and so, uh, I say all that to just preface it with, of, I was just inexplicably crushed and broken in that time. Uh, and, uh, it was really before all the drill sergeant stuff happened. It wasn't that it was a tough guy. Like none of that really bothered me. I thought it was a hilarious game, basic training, and it was not difficult for me. This was something different. It was like I was being unmade. It was like my heart was literally being ripped into pieces, and I didn't really have a clear explanation of why. Uh, still, it is absolutely confounding what was happening, and it happened over a course of a few days. I couldn't call home because I burst into tears, uh, and uh, through it all, uh, you know, uh, in the way that God communicates to me, which is extremely mysterious, and this was a special kind of event, I, I felt like God said to me, you've done your own thing long enough, now you'll work for me. And so I was changed. I, I, I got saved. Uh, but it wasn't like I, I went down to an altar and I'm like, slipped my hand yeah. up. And I'm like, oh, dude, and someone who prayed for me, I was alone. I was just alone. And I didn't know what to do uh, with that. But I'll just say of like, I was one way and then I was completely different forever. It stuck. And it, you know, like, maybe it came with a vengeance as well. But I don't even feel like I accepted Jesus. I feel like I was against my will, not looking for him, accosted violently by him. That's what it felt like. And well, that's when I, I was made into a follower. I didn't choose to follow Jesus. I was, uh, so I would love to be like, well, I made a decision. And I, yeah, I, I don't believe in that. Okay, I believe well. that God chooses us, saves us, and then we spend the rest of our life figuring out what the heck happened to us. Okay, well, I have not figured it out. I'm going to figure We're it out. We're in the process and then I'm gonna, of figuring it out. I'm going to email you. I'll let you know. So what, uh, what started to pivot then? How did that start to impact daily life, plans for the future, kind of what you were looking forward to as you kind of grew into manhood? Sure. So I was on a specific path to get to 2nd Range Battalion, which was uh, out toward uh, your stomping ground at the time in Washington State. Uh, I still just uh, so upset that I didn't even know anyway, but uh, wish I'd been able to connect with you uh, then. But anyway, I was on a, on a path to become an airborne ranger. And yep. so that, that was the path. And so my, my kind of trajectory was already plotted out. It was more of, all right, who am I now and what am I supposed to do? And uh, so I, I was kind of raised in the South around church where sometimes we were a Methodist or a Presbyterian or Episcopalian or Baptist or a non-denominational. And sometimes we weren't going and I was all of it because I was none of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I had a little bit of that, but I didn't really have any real understanding of what my real beliefs were and especially how I could apologetically defend it to a military kind of crowd. Yeah. And, and, and I certainly had no uh, desire to live that kind of life. I, I was not doing that. I was a, I was a hellion and a half. I had had, you know, a couple of arrests and I was, you know, pretty heavy into drugs. And I was a troubled kid that literally moved out at 15. You know, my parents were like, nope, I can't deal with you. And so gone. And so that, that was, that was, uh, you know, a, a pretty radical change for me. I found a local chapel on the military base. I got one of their free Bibles, and I read it from cover to cover very quick. Yeah. And when I was done, I flipped it over, and then I read it again. 
and then again, and then again. And I read it over and over. And so while I'm doing combat deployments with Ranger Battalion over to Afghanistan and Iraq over and over, I'm reading my Bible. I am leading Bible studies. I did five combat tours, and in each tour, I led Bible studies. And you notice when everyone thought we were going to die or getting like rocketed or shot at, like, oh man, it was packed in. It was like the oh, beginning yeah. of a little mega church. And then when we were in garrison in the back, of like, whoo, it shrink back down. But <laughs> no, I was following, but it was, uh, it, it was, I guess it was knowing the climate of Ranger Battalion. It was a pretty spiritually dark place. Yeah. Knowing that, I guess it was just hopeless for me to actually be a good follower of Jesus, his grace was sufficient in my weakness, and he kind of made it a little bit easier for me. <laughs> like yeah. it was, I walked with the Lord for the most part and grew in leaps and bounds, but he kind of lured me out to desert places and taught me about himself uh, in combat missions and everything in between. So that's um, an interesting rabbit trail. Let me, <clears throat> let me pull the thread. So give me some of those, I mean, just if you're willing, um, some of those... Jesus showed up here. He showed up here in battle, in training, in life. Just those, those times when you weren't looking for him, but he was looking for you, and you didn't know that he was deployed with you, but there he was. Sure. So uh, you mentioned combat story. Now that you said that, everyone's like, yeah, I'll tell the thing. I'm like, all right, I'll tell you the thing. We were on the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. Gosh. And what? <laughs> that just sounds like... That sounds like the that sounds like breakfast with your ex-wife. I mean, every day there's no way to make it good. That just sounds horrible. Yeah, it, it was a bad Afghanistan, Pakistan. Yeah, it's a bad place to vacation. I mean, you're double stand. Lots I mean, of that's, yeah, lots of sand, <laughs> no beaches, no mimosas. It's a crappy place to vacation, right? Yeah. So we're on the border there, and we're driving our Humvees. We had kind of like a, a vehicle convoy, and these have no roofs and no uh, windows or doors. Yeah, super secure. Yeah. Well, Rangers don't like to be in a steel box, and so some folks would be like, oh, like you, you want armor. I'm like, no, I don't want armor. I, I got guns. If I need to hide, I will hide behind a wall of lead that I create. And so that's the Ranger thing, and I want to be able to get out away from the vehicles mm -hmm. in case you get ambushed or something else like that. So we'll, Rangers do not like tanks and armored stuff because you, your uh, ability to have any battle wherewithal uh, and your ability to see and respond quickly is gone. And so we need to be able to be very, very fast to be able to react to contact. So anyway, we rolled in yeah. Humvees like that, but we're rolling up this like creek bed. They called it a road, not a road at all. It's like, this would be hard for a camel. A camel would stop at the entrance of this road and be like, no, I'm not doing that. Yeah. That's what a camel would say. But we drove it anyway. And so you're, you're really kind of navigating, figure out like, all right, how do you navigate up this, even with a Humvee? And, you know, you're topping out at like five miles an hour. We got up to the uh, top of this uh, kind of place right uh, at the pack, uh, uh, pack mill border there, uh, bedded down. In the morning, we woke up. Uh, I know, uh, terrific in the morning, we woke up. Terrific storytelling, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I'd gone on a little prayer walk uh, right before. Uh, the idea was it was reconnaissance. Really, it was my own little prayer walk, so I walked up to this mountain and just kind of saw out and stuff. But I had this real sweet time with the Lord. Nothing huge, just my own sweet time with the Lord. No talking bush. No, no, no burning bush. Jesus did not appear to me uh, and tell me to take off my cam combat boots. That would have been awesome, though. That would have been awesome. Uh, when, loaded up on the trucks, and we uh, pushed out. 
uh, just as we're a, a few minutes down that road, it lit up in this ambush. We got in a near ambush. Uh, an ambush is uh, of such a terrible, terrible scenario to get into uh, that you have uh, open fire, hand grenade range on both sides. You're in a ravine. You can't move quickly or anything. I was lead driver as a team leader and sergeant. Your lead driver is target number one. Yeah. If you kill the lead driver, the convoy stops. Then you kill the rear driver, and then you massacre everyone in between. But the thing about an ambush is, is it's tactically so hopeless that you're not supposed to survive them. You know, you don't survive near ambushes. I survived it. Uh, but not only that... Uh, we were able to, you know, I did the right thing. I punched out, got off the X, then we, we dismounted, got out, and we uh, dropped dudes and lit them up. Uh, but uh, all of our Rangers there was a platoon-sized element. It was probably five trucks. We fought through that immediately on contact. My front right tire was blown up by RPG, IED, I don't know. But we got hit immediately. Uh, we got the 50 cal over me, the Modus 50 cal. It's got this huge belted ammo. It falls off, and it's hitting me in the face as I'm trying to drive with one wheel while I get my gun. And it, like, it was just a mess. It was awful, a mess. It was terrible, terrible conditions. Uh, and not a single ranger in these vehicles got shot. Not How many one. guys were there with you? 30. Okay. 30. So five trucks. I mean, yeah. like, this is a whole yeah. element, and we are screwed. We are screwed. Uh, and no one got shot. That's impossible. That's impossible. Um, and so I think the Lord was protecting us. Uh, I was a, a bit... We pushed out in special operations. We pushed out in such small elements mm -hmm. that we couldn't take chaplains with us. And a lot of times we're, we're sleeping in a new geographical location around these different countries, traveling at the speed of human SIGA intelligence. And so every night you're sleeping in a different place. You know, you, you're, you're kicked off in these small, small little groups. And so in the absence of a chaplain, I was about as close as it got. Yeah. Uh, and I noticed throughout some of these uh, encounters Guys looked at me who were not as religious, a little bit like a lucky rabbit's foot. So I would get kind of pushed forward to do dangerous things, thinking if there is a God, he probably doesn't want Lovell to die. <laughs> <laughs> so I was consistently pushed into some oh, of this yeah. stuff. But that was one instance where the Lord was so good and protected me when really I was, I was screwed. We were all very, very screwed. There's nothing we could do uh, there. We did the best we could, but that was never going to be enough. But no one got shot, and that's impossible. So. so meeting Jesus in the military, most of evangelicalism today um, is either woke or soft woke. Yeah. The, the hard woke are just kind of deny everything in the Bible. The soft woke are kind of ashamed of everything in the Bible. Yeah. You know, so that, and the presentation of masculinity culturally is gone. Yeah. Um, and in the church, it's not much better. So how do you, as a soldier reading the Bible, you're not in the evangelical subculture, you're not in the church, you're just on deployment reading your Bible. How did that change your view of Jesus compared to the average 20-something-year-old guy who yeah. right now thinks he's on some gender spectrum and is trying to figure out whether to keep or mutilate his genitals. I mean, you came to a different view of Jesus just kind of there uh, deployed reading the Bible. How, how would you say that helped shape your view of Jesus and how is he different to you? 
It was dramatically different. It was how, how I went about evangelizing those beside me was extremely different of like, I wasn't looking, you know, handing out tracks and looking for an in. It was step one, be good at your job. If you're good at your job, then dudes will respect you. And then when their lives fall apart and they notice your life isn't falling apart, you know, and they have those questions. I had all kinds of opportunities yeah. that spurred up, but it started with be respectable and be good at your job. Dude, you don't if, suck. Yeah, if you suck at your job, it doesn't matter how happy you are or how theologically or philosophically astute you are. No one cares because they don't respect you. Well, if you don't do your job, they might die. That's right. That's absolutely right. So step one in evangelizing and kind of like a tougher alpha environment is be good at your job. Because if you're not good at your job and you're not respect worthy, no one gives a crap what you think or believe. Yeah. And so that was just, that was a a little bit of an epiphany. (laughs) I'm like, oh, there you go. Um, I remember keenly uh, being a young christian in the military we came back from combat i was going to go to the christian bookstore and i was going to check out some stuff i'm like i'm gonna learn some stuff here this will be great and i remember walking in and you know i just i'm fresh from the battlefield you know and i'm reading my bible there and it's it's interesting when you read the bible i I saw just a really gritty masculinity and an extremely practical faith it's kind of like be ready to die for Jesus. I'm like, all right, I'm going to go ready to die for Jesus. And then you literally almost die that night. And it's kind of like, that was a different environment. You know, we're yeah. not, we're not, this is not a, let's get a bunch of cotton balls and, and, you know, do arts and crafts for Jesus time. This was a very tough and practical faith where I literally needed, I needed my faith to be able to unstick me from terrifying freezing points. Yeah. It's like everything was a, a dramatic dialed up all the way to the max intensity testing. So how did that change? Did that, did that help reduce or eliminate fear of death? Uh, I'll get to that okay. in a moment, but I'll say for, for, I would go in this bookstore and I'll see pane glass windows everywhere, Thomas Kincaid paintings. And it just looked so emasculate. And I'm just kind of like, where's the battle axis? I want, you know, like some, you know, big double-edged sword. I'm yeah. like, where's that kind of cool stuff? Where, where are the authors that are going to really speak to me? You know, and I just didn't really find much of that. It was very difficult. Uh, the, the closest I came was I found John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. And that was a pretty big moment for me where I'm kind of like he took two things of like a masculinity, uh, but also kind of this poet stuff of like I, I speak in warrior poet. So he's got the warrior and the poet and he pulls that together and really started me uh, on a, a way that that uh, when I was overseas in a combat zone, this warrior and poet, this tough lion and lamb made perfect sense. It was when I got back to the States where there seemed to be some paradox or disconnect. And so anyway, it seemed simple and easy and obvious when I was overseas. It was the States where it got confusing again. Uh, It was cultural Christianity where it seemed disconnected from biblical Christianity. And that was my biggest struggle. Well, and part of that, just historically, what happened was during the, particularly the world wars, but, but all the wars, so many young men deploy. So what you've got left in church are older mm. people, women and children. Yeah. And so then they start creating church that works for retirees, women and children. So then the women decide, hey, it needs to be decorated like this. The music needs to be played like this. The aesthetic needs to appear like this. Then a lot of the young men come back from combat. They walk into the church and they're like, man, it is a whiplash going from a military environment now into an effeminate church environment. 
And I always say that women feel comfortable in a masculine environment more than men feel comfortable in a feminine environment. Yeah. So a guy can take his girlfriend or his wife to a sports bar, but she can't take him to a nail salon. Right. You walk into a nail salon, you're like, I will be outside. You just immediately start to glitch. If, that's, that's, that's amazing. That's exactly what I did last time. <laughs> I was in a nail salon. You're like, Goodbye. I do not belong here. I will, I will be pay outside. for things when I must. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll be in the car. Summon me. <laughs> And so the church became this environment for senior citizens and for women and children. Fascinating, yeah. And so men never took the culture of church back, and men were used to, in combat, profound fraternity. Right. And then you come back to church, you're like, there's not that brotherhood. There's right. not that linking of arms. And so the church has stayed in that trend. And then psychology comes in, and there are some things in psychology that are helpful, and I believe in integrative counseling and all that. But all of a sudden then, the pastor's the old guy who's doing counseling for everyone. And the pulpit starts to sound more like self-help and therapy and counseling. And, Makes sense, yeah. And the average dude walks in, you know, who's been, let's say, you know, fighting overseas in a world war, and he's like, this just doesn't feel like I'm supposed to be here. Yeah. The old guys talking about feelings and the women and children created the environment. Right. No, it makes perfect sense. Yep. And, you know, I'm glad that women and children and older people are in church, but there wasn't a consideration. Are we creating an environment that will repel men who need to be here? Which has happened of like, uh, you know, my wife and I recently moved and so... The whole church, you're looking for a church church shopping thing in there. I have like one kind of necessary thing of like, I need, I need to follow strong masculinity. I feel like you, you find a place that's good enough. And then just like any family, you kind of say, put my yes on the table. I'm like, yep, I'm going to like any family stuff. You like stuff you don't. And I'm in it for better or worse. It's like, here I am. But just finding that, uh, just, Hey, I want a church, biblical Bible, you know, Bible, Bible teaching, teaching church. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of good enough on all the closed-handed issues. Uh, and, uh, you know, we mesh well with the culture. But really, I just need to follow, uh, you know, a strong male leader, you know. Doesn't have to be the world's greatest, you know, uh, preacher by any means. But I, I needed that. And so, uh, but it's hard to find. It's increasingly hard to find. And and the the church itself usually is trying to architect all of its programming to make up for the fact that the man is not active and involved. <laughs> so it's massive kids ministry, massive yeah. student ministry, massive divorce recovery, massive women's ministry. It's like, well, if you did men's ministry, you may be able to diminish the needs in all of these other ministries. But they ministries. just don't know how, right? They don't know how. Or maybe they need men to be able to run that ministry, and there aren't men that are ready to do it or can do it. or I, I don't know. You, you would know this better than I, but... Why is that? <laughs> Where are they? You've got, you've got dudes. You know, you're a young church filled with men, and it seems like you are majoring on what everyone else cannot even really successfully minor on. You're crushing it with that demographic where it seems to be absent uh, from other stuff. When I, when I go look at a church, I immediately clued in before the pastor even speaks of like, all right, how many young or middle-aged you know, men. Are there some guys here? Are there some dudes here that kind of got the look like if something went down here, these guys are, are going to help me secure the perimeter. I'm like, that, that, that's who I'm looking for, right? And I'm like, that, those are my people. How many of those dudes are there? So. Most places, there's very, very few. And if they walk in, they feel very uncomfortable. Yeah. 
they feel very awkward. And where the culture is at, and this is where it's it's increasingly complicated, because what um, I don't mean to get down this rabbit trouble, maybe it's interesting, and then I want to go back to the fear of death. Yeah, I want to do. But fear like death. at the end of the day, a lot of churches are like, well, how do we make everybody feel comfortable? I think that's a horrible question. You know, because as a, as a as a heterosexual man, most of the places I go upset me. <laughs> yeah. Like, like I have a nervous eye twitch in Target. You know, uh, it's just it's like you know I can go take a leak in the women's bathroom and I can go buy you know rainbow apparel and I mean just the whole thing just kind of glitches me a yeah. little bit. You know, so most of the places I go feel rather offensive and inhospitable to me. Right. So um, if, if people who, you know, disagree with us on whatever matters, if everything in the world is built so that they feel comfortable, then why don't we create a church where the people who are doing what God says to do, they feel comfortable, right. some countercultural environment. I mean, as a, as a dude, if you walk into church, you're like, it feels like Target. Yeah. You know, it, it, it feels like I'm, I'm in Disneyland. Or I've time traveled to the 1950s. You know, just why and the worst version of the 1950s. Yeah, if like that carpet was never popular. Yeah, that no one ever liked. Mauve or green? Yeah, those are your options. Yeah, yeah. And so what happens then is we have taken a whole generation of men who desperately need uh, big brothers and fathers and grandfathers. Mm -hmm. They need models and mentoring. So many of them came from fatherless homes or abusive father situations. There is no organization or institution seeking to give those guys any help, any coaching, any directives. All masculinity is toxic. Maybe, you know, try having sex with a dude and see if that doesn't work. I mean, that's kind of the cultural option. When you walk in the church, it's like it's the last gun at the fort. It's the last place of hope. Yeah. If God's people don't raise up sons, daughters, men, women, it's over. Yeah. No one else is doing it. Nowhere else is doing it, you know? And so, yeah, I could see where you being in combat, deployed, having brotherhood, reading the Bible in the lens of conduct, of combat, coming back to church, it's like, I love Jesus, I, but I, I don't know what to do with his people. Right. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, that's, that's it. I saw him as a, more of a war captain than it seemed like uh, a lot of folks see him in the States as well. Of Like, yeah, that, that was my commander of the Lord's army, right? Yeah. So th that was kind of like my default position. Uh, and so, yeah, so when you were deployed then back to that question, when you became a Christian, how did it affect your view of death going into combat? Cause it, it, I, I would assume uh, if you're in combat and you're not sure what happens after you die, every day is a pretty horrifying day in combat. Um, so everyone has to deal with the exact same question. It's just the soldier has to deal with it all the time. It's reality. Uh, it's reality of like, hey, I may die today. And so that, that's, a real, that's a real thing. And so you can't skirt the question very long. There's an I have so much to say on this. There's uh, an expression that there's no atheists in foxholes, which of course is not true. There are absolutely atheists in foxholes. But, but when something as awful as going down they're they're praying to the nothing. <laughs> they're yeah. like, oh, but maybe. You know, they, they love to snuggle up with a Christian as well. They'll never admit it afterwards, but it's kind of like, man, what, how, how does this work? Of like, you know, do I kiss a crucifix or I'll do the thing right now? And maybe you know, it is true that when people start, uh, when people are afraid for their lives, they start grasping beyond themselves. They start to really wonder. 
it is critical that someone needs to have the hardest questions of life already answered before you get into a fight. Because the crazy thing about fear is, is it takes you in all these unpredictable places. You should be focused on the mission at hand, doing what you need to be able to do, do your job. But then all of a sudden something creeps up and grabs the forefront of your mind of like, Hey, you know, of like, what if you die of like, or, or is there, is there a heaven or, or is there a hell? Or uh, may, maybe it's, you don't have uh, good relationships with some you may, you're separated from your spouse or something else like that. Of like that, that may grab you. If you have some unresolved goal of like, well, oh my God, I'm not ready to die. Or like, do I really believe in this war of like, am I ready to die for this? And then, so yeah, you're all of a sudden in a moment when your mind should be focused on the mission at hand, you can literally have your mind hijacked by all these different theological or philosophical questions. And people think that in the moment they'll be ready and adrenaline will kick in. Your mind can go to really weird places in those moments and it can be a horrible distraction at best. And it can completely debilitate you and steal your courage at worst. And the idea, I mean, it could be absolutely fatal. And so guys have to figure out a way to cope with that. One is to answer the tougher theological and philosophical questions. For me, it was easy of like, okay, if I die, I'm going to go be with Jesus. And I didn't feel like that was a bad gig. I'm like, I can be ready to die. That doesn't sound awful. And so I'm kind of like, all right, I I wasn't looking for a bullet. I was going to try to shoot them before they shoot me. And I was on board with that idea. And so I was trying to do that thing. Uh, but if, you know, if a bullet did catch me and, and I, I was down for the count, going to be an eternal paradise with my soulmate Jesus didn't sound like a bad consolation prize. And so that wasn't a hard question for me. It was more about uh, I, I want to do well to defend my buddies by yeah. my left and right. And, you know, of like it was more about that kind of stuff attached to me. And so th- that was... That was a little bit more difficult. You want to get in there and ask? Yeah. You say something else there? No, but... no, no. You're doing good. Keep going. I think it's really fascinating because the truth is, in combat, you're dealing with the reality of death, but everybody is dealing with it. Some are just denying it because it doesn't seem like it's pressing. Right. Uh, but, you know, the grave is undefeated. Everybody ends up at it eventually. Yeah. And the sooner you're able to answer kind of what you anticipate happens on the other side, probably reverse engineers how you live your life toward that point. And it really helps clarify stuff as well, because most folks live with their head in the sand. They don't want to face those questions. We just, let's eat and drink today for tomorrow we die. But that's tomorrow, so let's think about it then. Instead of like, whoa, party, do your thing and binge watch Netflix and do whatever you want to with your life. But death is coming for you, and you don't know when. And so uh, the soldier doesn't have the luxury of that. If if you find anyone that's ever had near-death experiences, it forces you to really think about what matters the most. Mm -hmm. Uh, It makes you come to a point of decision of what is worth dying for and what is worth living for. And it gives a great context to all the mundane things we do day to day. Now, we still have the tyranny of the urgent. We still got to take out the trash. I'm like, I'm going to die today. I'm not going to take out the trash. I'm like, no, you still got to do some stuff, you know? But it does give great context of I want to live a life of significance. I want to count uh, I want to spend my energy and my strength pouring into the relationships that matter most. I want to be able to stand before my father, my audience of one God, and know that I did well and I served him. And even if everyone hated me and everyone you know, stopped following my YouTube or whatever, our network, whatever we're doing, I'm like, 
but God's pleased. I'm like, then, then that's a well-lived life. That's good. I'm like, I want a life of significance. I want it to count. I want it to matter. Uh, and so uh, my big goal is on my deathbed. Whenever that is, I'm ready. And so, I, I, you know, I've, I'm, I haven't announced this to anyone, but I, I've been uh, writing a book. And you oh. read a book, but, but the first one is tough. You know, I already kind of uh, got the first rough draft across the finish line, but it's going to be The Warrior Poet Way, uh, Our Guide to Living Free and Dying Well. And part of the thing is, is we start with the end in mind. That's where it starts, of like, if, if you uh, aren't ready to die, you're not ready to live. Because you don't know how. Yeah. Death is that great philosopher that teaches you how to live. Mm-hmm. And so we really have to reverse engineer our life. And, and, and so that fear... Uh, and, and that uh, close proximity to death allows us to really a- be able to see uh, life so that we can live it well. Yeah, and so uh, when do you think you'll release the book? Uh, Q3 2023, so a long time. You've given yourself a little bit of time to... Yeah, and I've got a publisher, and they're doing their stuff, and, and PR, the re- and I don't understand it. I'm just, I'm just writing. So, yeah. uh, That's great. Man. Yeah, yeah, Congratulations. Thank you. It's, thank it's you. quite an undertaking. It's one thing to read a book. It's a whole other thing to write it. And once you're writing a book, you really appreciate all the books you've ever read. I'm reading Les Miserables by Victor Hugo mm-hmm. right now. And uh, I will never be as good at anything as he is at writing. Yeah. Like, just because I'm, I'm writing, I'm like, oh, I'll read some Hugo. And then I'm like, okay, okay, I, I suck. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a terrible writer. So don't read the book. I'm terrible. Instead, read Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. He's really good at writing. I am not. That's so, right. So... So where are you going to go in the book? Just, I don't want to give away your whole thing, but for those who may be curious where you're going, how much of it is going to be your story? How much of it is life lessons? How much of it is just teaching? The publisher kicked back the first kind of submission. They always do, yeah. And they said, we want more of your personal stories in it. I know everything about me, and I'm incredibly bored with most of my story points. So, like, I didn't even have combat stories in there. They're making me put them in there. And so, all right, fine. But really, I just, uh, I have biographical elements, but it's there just to serve the major points, which is what I care about. I care about the truth. I care about the points, and I care about helping folks and uh, enriching and encouraging and strengthening and expanding the amount of warrior poets out there. Cool. That's what I'm into. So, um, For the sake of time, because um, I want to go buy you and your wife tacos tonight, um, how could people be praying for you, your wife, your sons? Wow, thank you. Um, I'm a pastor, bro. we got to get there at some point. I appreciate and it. And I, I mean, your yeah. family really, that's what any decent guy, that's what gets him up in the morning. Yeah. That's what's on his heart at night. You're, you know, when all is said and done, if you've got your wife and your kids you're good. Uh, a, a man is successful based on the priorities that he makes and how well he balances between those priorities. And so uh, I want life balance, and it's the hardest thing I do by far. Uh, and so uh, to be able to balance uh, all the priorities of uh, life well, uh, and also, you know, just being able to, I got a lot of eyes looking at me and, and, and watching and watching. Uh, uh, whether I, uh, yeah, and, and I don't feel worthy of that, but I'm keenly aware of the weight of it all. Mm-hmm. And so uh, for my part, uh, I, I would love to just kind of live, a, live apart and I'm happy on my farm with my family and stuff. But then all of a sudden something ticks me off and I'm like, turn on the cameras. I have a message. <laughs> and so it's that. It's like yeah. I can't shut up. I got that. Uh, but I want to be able to um, 
balance my life well and to be able to get really good rest as well. Uh, but that, that weight uh, of having a good bit of people following you, that's always on my shoulders. And it's, I don't want to let anyone down. I want to do well. And, you know, I'm not haunted by the shadow of the man I should be, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. And I want to be that man better. And so I, I guess that just means being more like Jesus and less like me. And so uh, we'll pray for that too. So I'll close this question. How much has being a dad taught you about God as father? I think what happens for a man, I think we have, I think we start as young men and we're like, I like Jesus because he's, he's young and he's the son and we relate to that. And you don't know a lot about God, the father until you have kids, right? especially sons. And then you're like, ah. Now God the Father's starting to make some sense. Right. It helps me with both carrot and stick. One is uh, my boys, they, they do not fathom the fact that I love them so unconditionally, apart from uh, all their accolades or whatever they do. It's kind of like, hey, Daddy, guess what? Today we played tag and no one could get me. And, you know, that kid right there is jockeying for a higher place in my mind of like, Daddy loves me more. Daddy approves yeah, more. And they yeah. don't understand the yep. heart of Daddy. Great. I, I don't you start really, in the end zone. Yeah. Good job, kid. I'm like, yay for that. I don't. This has not. This doesn't have the bearing that you think it does. <laughs> yeah. I love you more in con- unconditionally and forever and completely than you could possibly know. You know, of like, suck it, tag kid. I'm gonna love you. <laughs> like, <laughs> surprise, daddy still loves you. Yeah. And so that's uh, you know, if I recognize uh, a little bit more about God's unconditional love that is not built to my performance or my accolade or my, uh, you know, any of that stuff. It's just God loves me not because I'm love lovable, but because He's loving, and that's it. And so I'm like, all right, that's that's, that's where, a good thing. That's where Paul juxtaposes God as Father, God as Master. Yeah. And I think for most men, they see God as Master. Yeah. If I do good, He likes me. If I do bad, He hates me. Yeah. And they're in that performance treadmill. God as Father, it's like. I start with love, approval, affection, and if I succeed, that doesn't change. And if I fail, that yeah. doesn't change. Yeah. Uh, so that was kind of carrot of like that, that, mm-hmm. that tells me something really good about God that I've learned personally through fathering. And one way that I resemble God, and here, here's the stick, here's the way I don't resemble God at all, of like, I am not nearly as good of a son as I would have liked to think I was. I'll say to my boys, of like, boys, what did I tell you to do? And you didn't do it, right? Okay, well, delayed obedience is disobedience, right? That's the old saying of like, delayed obedience is disobedience. And so, uh, d- did you say that? I wonder if... I don't know, bro. Probably somewhere back there. Rewind the class. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And I'll say it to them and immediately think of like, how have I delayed obedience to God? And then if like, anytime I have some kind of like thing to say to my boys, I immediately have something where I'm being a hypocrite in that exact same way. Yeah. And I recognize... Oh, I just I just jumped on him about that, and I'm upset about that. And I recognize God is more patient with me than I am with my sons. Ah, he's a really good father. Mm-hmm. And so I'm constrained by these things. <laughs> There's a couple things I've learned. That's there. great. Yeah. We'll leave it at that. We love you and your family. We're honored to have you. Thanks for coming in, giving me some time. And uh, we'll do a little bit of an interview at Real Men, and we'll post that as well. And where can everybody find you? 
most people probably know you, but if they don't, where would they find you and all of your shenanigans? Shenanigans is right. We do a lot of stupid stuff on the internet. We have like our own TV show and stuff, and it gets really, really silly, our War Poet show. But it's, it's got some good stuff, too. Type in Warrior Poet in the internet, and you'll find it. Cool. So Thank Warrior you, Poet. Yep.